0: morning everyone. I'm honored to be with you today again and share the word of God. It's always a privilege to talk about God's word and I love exposition. I love I love this book. You were given a white card when you came in, right? Please do not write on it. Please do not write on it. We'll come back to it later. It's very important that you leave it blank. Well, I don't know if you've been enjoying this series of Mark, but I sure have. I I just love the book, and I love how it starts. Chapter 1, verse 1, a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Is that amazing or what? I mean, that's the heart of Mark, right there. And then right out of that, we have some wonderful other truths. John, John the Baptist appears in the scene, and, and we have the, the Trinity appear at the baptismal scene of Jesus, and then Jesus overcomes the enemy in the wilderness, and then he picks some disciples, and then the miracles start to happen, and the crowd begins to gather, and he begins to teach the Word of God, and, and then we come to the end of chapter, and we find this wonderful prayer moment with Jesus and the Father, and, and we are invited into that kind of same kind of relationship, and then we have the healing of the leper and him still teaching the word of God and all of that the focus is Jesus the Son of God. We now begin in chapter 2, and we get to chapter 2. It's interesting because we see the same thing continuing. In fact, to be honest, if you read Mark up to about chapter 10, the focus is on how amazing Jesus is. That's the heart of, of Mark. And then we also find at this time a new designation for Jesus. We find a new title for him in this next portion of Scripture. And then we also find the beginning of opposition. We actually see people rising up and saying, I'm not sure about who this Jesus is. And so, the theme today is the healing of forgiveness, and as we start our market up, let's turn to our text. I have to confess, in the first service, we missed three or four verses. I don't know how that happened, and they were, they were trying to fix it. I hope that it worked, so let's uh, let me read it to you. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that... There was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. Thank you for fixing. This is great. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Is that amazing or what? What a great text of scripture. Let's pray for a moment. God, we pray that you would honor your word today and enable each of us to understand the truth as it applies to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The healing of forgiveness is our subject today. The interesting thing is I actually want to start by talking about fear. I want to start by talking about fear. Here's the reality, folks. There were a group of people that began to follow Jesus, they wanted to know what he taught. And so it's interesting. There were a group of people already committed to Jesus. They were already followers of Jesus. They were interested in who he was and what he had to say. There were some others who were just interested in the miracles. They wanted to know what was going to happen next. There were probably some skeptics in the crowd because they were uncertain and they were just checking it out. They'd heard things and they wanted to figure it out. There were another group of people that actually came because other people came. (laughs) Every crowd has got that. Why are you here? Well, my friend came. And so we have all this crowd of people and the Bible actually tells us why they came. They came because it says that he taught the word of God to them. He taught them biblical truth. I want to show you a video because it was a different group of people there as well. Here's the video. Now the interesting thing is, folks, the, um, this man stood in Washington Metro. The video's not very good because it was taken with security camera. They actually kept it blurry on purpose. But this man stood in Washington, D.C. in the morning, rush hour in cold January. He actually played for 45 minutes, and he played six Bach pieces of music, classical music. And during that time, thousands Thousands of people, they estimated, went by him. It was very interesting. It took three minutes before anybody even stopped. They just stopped for a moment, they walked by just hurried by. And then and then later a middle-aged man sort of stopped for a moment and and he paused but he hurried on as well. And then a woman went by and she didn't stop at all but she threw a dollar tip in his violin case. And and then a few minutes later a, a woman went by with a little 3-year-old and that was the most long stop right there because this 3-year-old was just amazed by this guy playing the violin and and his the mother hurries him along he's staring and staring and staring back at the violinist and trying to get his attention or looking at him at least and the interesting thing, in that whole 45 minutes, he actually collected a whole $32. What people didn't understand is that this was Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is one of the most famous violinists in the entire world world and that same week he had gone to the largest symphony orchestra home in the entire city of Boston and the average ticket was $100 each to hear him and as he stood in the metro that day he played a violin that was worth three and a half million dollars and the crowd just went by. The Washington Post wanted to check something out. Here's what they actually were trying to determine. Do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize the talent in an unexpected context? And the reality is the crowd did. But there were other people at Capernaum as well. And some of them were the religious leaders of their day. Some of them were from the temple area, the, the, the area of Capernaum itself. And some of them it appears came from the temple in Jerusalem. The fame of, fame of Jesus had already spread. Folks, that's not a small thing. It's 137 kilometers or 85 miles from the temple in Jerusalem to Capernaum. And so because they were nervous about this Jesus, they come and now the funny thing is of all the people on the earth, you think they would be the ones most excited about Jesus. They've been praying for years that the Messiah would come. They announced and predicted the Messiah would come, but just like people missed the music in a in a subway station in Washington D.C., they missed the fact that this really was the Son of God. And in fact, not only did they miss it, they were actually fearful of him. They were afraid that they didn't understand, and, and of course, he confused them because they stressed legalism and he stressed love, and they stressed tradition and he stressed God's law instead. And They lived in bondage and he offered freedom and they applauded the outward act of service and he talked about an inward response and an inward attitude. They feared the crowds that followed him. They feared the miracles he did. (coughs) Excuse me. They feared his teaching. They actually feared him. And in the midst of that fear, there comes a moment of amazing faith. In the midst of that teaching, here are four men who think, okay, Jesus is in Capernaum. We have a friend who's a paralytic. Wow, Jesus has already healed all kinds of people. Maybe maybe we should go get our friend. And so they go get their friend. And they head to Capernaum, to the house where Jesus is. And they bring their friend with them on some kind of a better stretcher. We don't know what it is. But they bring him with them. And the Bible says that when they got there, the crowd was so big they couldn't get in the door. It was just packed inside and out. Now, houses in that day were built different than houses now. They were much smaller, and many of them had flat roofs. And because they had flat roofs, they also had stairs up the side of the house, which was very common. If you actually read the Old Testament, one of the feasts that Israel was supposed to keep was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles were once a year, in memory of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and God's provision, they were to move out of their houses and they were to camp for eight days. Most of them camped on top of their house because it was a great camping place. Now, I'm not, you know, i got to be honest. My idea of camping is holiday. End, but but nevertheless, they lived at, they called the Feast of Booze or Sticks. And so they lived outside their houses, and, and that's what they did. So this is one of those moments. So this house is flat on top. And, and then the Bible says something really unique. Now, it's interesting. There's all kinds of theolo- theology goes around this. I'll talk about that in a moment. They couldn't get in the house. So what they did was they got to the top of the house, And the Greek actually says it this way. They unroofed the roof. Now, the houses were built different then, so it wasn't like our, you would be hard to unroof most of our houses, but this is just some beams and it's got some thatch on top and some sod on top of that. Strong enough you could stand on it, but not hard to move, not hard to dig out. And the people underneath had to be aware that they were digging this out because the dirt would be falling down as Jesus begins to teach. And the theological issues were kind of interesting. Say, well, Was the man upset that, that that the house was being taken apart? Well, it doesn't appear to be. Was, the, was the man up. Well, you know, maybe, maybe the owner of the house was one of the friends who went to get the paralytic. We just don't know. The, Mark doesn't tell us. Mark often leaves details out. He just doesn't tell us. But what we do know is they dropped Jesus, Jesus. They dropped this paralytic in front of Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus honored their faith. It's interesting. Now, folks, listen. It doesn't tell us that the four people who carried the paralytic had faith. And it doesn't tell us that the paralytic had faith. It might have been all five of them. We don't know. Mark, again, doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that this was a faith moment for them. How different from the scribes. How different from the scribes, folks. See, the scribes were just so concerned. They were so fearful, so anti, that they actually reasoned in their heart against him. In verse 6 and 7. In verse 16, they actually complain to the disciples about Jesus. In verse 24, they complain to Jesus about the disciples. In chapter 3, they begin to plot how they can destroy him. And in verse 22 of chapter 3, they say he's of the devil. And here we have in the middle of this opposition, these men of faith wondering, I wonder, I wonder what Jesus might do And in the middle of this, we have this wonderful message of forgiveness. Notice what happens in the midst of this story as Jesus is teaching them. This paralytic is lowered in front of him. And what does Jesus say? The first words out of his mouth are words of forgiveness. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are are forgiven you. Hold it a minute. He's a paralytic. What what do you mean your sins are forgiven you? Well, that's what Jesus says. And interestingly, he interestingly addresses instantly the issue of sickness and sin. Now, folks, it was very common in those days to associate the two together. If you were sick, it was probably because you had some grievous sin in your life. That's why it worked. And some people still believe that to be true today, and I'll come back to that also. But you do understand that sometimes you can be sick and not because of sin at all, right? You know that, right? How many of you are, of you are over 60 here? Welcome to the world of a little pain. And it has nothing to do with sin. It just has to do with getting old, right? That's just the way it is. Have any of you inherited any little illnesses from your parents? Oh, bless your heart. Blame them. You know? Because that's, that's sometimes we have congenital illnesses that come from family, just part of life. It's not part of sin. And I think it's really important we stop here and take a look at that for a moment. I remember pastoring a church, and in that church was one of the godliest women I've ever known in my entire life. I can honestly say to you, after many hours of interaction, I never once heard her complain, I never heard her be negative, I never heard her gossip, I never heard her have a bad word about anybody. What I did see was a life of prayer and intercession and witness and faith. She was just absolutely an amazing woman. There's a place in the scripture that it says of the disciples that the people took counsel or a notice of the disciples that they had been with Jesus. And when you were with this woman, her name was Irene, you just couldn't help but notice that she'd been with Jesus. I used to say this to my wife all the time. I don't know if it was true or not, but I believed it to be true, that you could actually bring me in the church service with a blindfold on so I couldn't see the people and I could tell you if Irene was in the service because of the godliness of her life. And she died of cancer in her mid-fifties. And some well-meaning soul went to visit her while she was ill and sat with her and said, the reason you're sick is because of the sin in your life. And if you will just repent of your sin and confess, God will heal you. She called me. She was distraught. The only time I've ever seen her distraught in her life. She called me. And I happened to have a free moment, and I went right over to see her, and I asked her this question. I said, if that's true, then... The God that I know would want to tell you what the sin is. Has God told you any sins in your life? Well, no. Well, how do you repent if you don't know what the sins are? Folks, let let me say something to you. God does not play games with our lives. It's not a guessing game with God ever. He doesn't hold some kind of a carrot in front of our nose and say, if you can catch it, then I'll do this. That's just not the God of the Bible at all. It doesn't work that way. And I said, do you, Could you have any sense in your life at all that there's some sin that you should repent of and know what the sin is? She said, No. I said, Then they were wrong. And sometimes in the name of Jesus, we can do things that are unkind, unmerciful, and unchristian, folks. Let's be really careful with our words. And let's be really careful judging sin in other people's lives when we have so much sin in our own. Just a thought are we okay? Are we still friends? Okay, good. Here's the deal. In this case, it appears that that's exactly what it was, though. It appears from the text that the reason there was sin in the paralytic's life was because... The sickness was there was because of some sin in his life. I don't know for sure, but that's what it appears to be. There was some sin there, and you know that all sin is a consequence. God never winks at sin. Jesus doesn't wink at sin. And Jesus' first words to him are not, you're healed, but I want to deal with the sin in your life because it's obvious that it's there to me, and I want to help you with that. And folks, we can't be too critical of the paralytic because which of us are without sin? This is Sunday. In the last seven days, since last Sunday, eight days if you want to call it that, most of us have been guilty of sin. In fact, all of us have been guilty of sin. As I was preparing this message, I decided to go through a number of books of the scriptures in the New Testament and look up a list of sins. I was going to read them to you, but it's just way too long. And in Galatians, I found a whole bunch. Chapter 5, and I found some in Romans and in Timothy and in Revelation and Ephesians and Colossians. I didn't even touch the Gospels, and there were books I didn't even look at. And when I added them up, the sins that I found came to 61. Wow. Wow. There was one author actually said that he discovered 148 sins in the Bible. And it was interesting. He was besieged by people who wanted to know the list of them. I think probably they were afraid they'd miss some and wanted to make sure they didn't miss doing them all. I don't don't know. Well, why else would they write them? I don't know. Who wants to know a list of sins? Here's what I do know. That sin is common to all of us. And so since last Sunday... I just made a few that I think are common to most of us. Anybody have any gossip this last week? Anybody say something about somebody else they shouldn't have? Anybody unkind? to Somebody at work or a friend or a family member? Husband or wife or child? Any parent? Anybody unkind? Anybody have any anger? William Barclay calls anger instant insanity. Anybody have one of those lost moments? Anybody have some moral or sexual sin? Hidden, private, but still there, you know. Anybody dishonest in any dealings with anybody? And you knew it. Anybody? Anybody with any sense of pride that moved God away from the center of your life? Any unbelief, any disobedience, any prejudice, any idolatry, any anxiousness or lack of trust in God, any indifference. I think that's the great sin of the age. The great sin of the age, folks, is indifference to God daily in our lives. Any of that? Well, I have a confession to make to you. In the last seven or eight days, I've had some sin in my life. Anybody else here with me? Oh, good. Well, I mean, bad, but you know what I mean. I just—I'm glad to know I'm not alone. But I'm sorry you sinned, and I'm sorry that I did. Here's 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 the deal. I'm not going to tell you mine if you don't tell me yours. Is that is that fair? Can we go there? Is that all right? Here's what I know. I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want my sins printed on a bulletin board and hang it out in the foyer of this outside this auditorium so we could all read them and see. I, anybody want that? See, no. We just need to admit and acknowledge that they're. There, when I think about sins, I have to confess. I, uh, no, sorry, let me go back. When I think about sin, I couldn't help but remind me of somebody tried to summarize them some years ago, and they came up with what's called the seven deadly sins, and and here they are: Uh, pride, and excessive beliefs in one's own abilities, and envy is the desire for others' traits or status or abilities or situation, and gluttony is an inordinate desire to consume more than we require, and lust is an inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body, and anger is manifested in the individual who spurns love and opts for fury instead, sometimes called wrath. And greed is the desire for material wealth or gain that ignores people around you. It's called avarice or covetousness sometimes. And sloth is the avoidance of physical or spiritual work. Seven deadly sins. I was studying these once. I actually was thinking about writing writing a a, a book on them. and, And as I got studying, I ran across a reference to seven deadly sins written by a person who wasn't even a Christian. He was very influenced by Christianity, but he wasn't a Christian. His name was Gandhi. But I think his seven list of deadly sins are worth looking at. And and here's what Gandhi said. He said, here are his seven deadly sins. Wealth without work. Think of it for a moment now. Pleasure without conscience. That's powerful, folks. Science without humanity. Knowledge without character. Politics without principle. Principle commerce without morality, and worship without sacrifice. No, I, folks, I'm not, I, I'm not a very musical person, so I don't worship as openly and demonstratively like you do all, like some of you do. Some of you are more like me. You're quiet and reserved a little bit. But, but the reality is I worship in my heart. But I often wonder, God, I, I, I'm willing to give you my, my voice, but am I willing to give you my life? I'm willing to give you songs of praise. I'm willing to let you touch my pocketbook. I'm willing to let you touch my family. Am I willing to let you touch every part of my life? Because real worship should give more than just token praise. It should impact every part of our of our lives. Well, I'm guilty of some of those this, this week. Guilty as charged. And then if I'm being honest, there are some sins that we battle more frequently than others. There's sort of two or three sins for most of us that are regular parts of our lives. You know, I'm 69 now. I never planned to get old, but here I am. And I, and I still struggle with one sin more than any others. You see, one of the things when you get old, sin becomes less of a problem. It just does. You're just too tired. Like, you just don't care. It's just take... Oh, that sin sounds good, but it takes so much energy. It's just not worth it. Well, that's what happens when you get a little older. But the reality is sin is still dominant. You still think about them, even if you don't do them. Unfortunately, when the Bible talks about that, here's what it says. If you've thought about it, you're guilty of it because it's the desire of your heart. And the one sin that I've struggled with more than any others, folks, is the sin of letting God be the Lord of my life. I wake up every morning happy. I wake up every morning kind of bright-eyed. I'm instantly awake. I'm awake early. I love it. I love mornings. And I'm ready to take on the day. And I see every day kind of as a sense of an adventure. I'm very thankful for the attitude. But the problem with it is I have a tendency to leave God out. I still have my devotional life. I still pray. I still read the word. But in the middle of all that, I could easily not make God the Lord of my life. I can make me the Lord of my life. And I have to struggle constantly. And even though I know, I know, I know that it's critical, I still find it the discipline of my life to actually get there. And I confess there are times I still struggle in that area. Am I the only one? Am I the only one? Do you have sins in your life that you struggle with regularly? Well, see, that's what Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing this issue of sin. Here's the good news. What does the man do? The man actually believes that Jesus can forgive sins. More than that, he actually believes that his sins are forgiven. That's the amazing part of this text, that God actually comes along. And I love the word forgiveness here. I want you to notice it. The word for forgiveness here means total remission absolutely gone, 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 gone. And not only does Jesus forgive the sin and make sure it's gone, but it actually means that the guilt of the sin is gone as well. Not always the consequences because we make choices, but the guilt is gone. Before God, we are clean and holy. And that's what happens to the paralytic. And then and only then does he get healed. So he's spiritually healed and then he's physically healed. Is that good news or what? Isn't that good news? Well, and then we get to the real issue here. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. That's the good news of this story. And in the middle of all of that, folks, we have the skeptics. Well, when the scribes heard what Jesus said, they are upset. They're offended to the core. And they don't say anything out loud, but they think it out loud. How many have seen people that you can tell exactly what they're thinking just by looking their face? You know somebody like that? I have a pastor friend that used to sit in the platform in those days, and they had to get him off the platform. They really had to get him off the platform because if he was really happy, everybody knew it. And if he was really not happy with the song they sang, everybody knew it. If they guest speaker and they didn't like him, everybody knew it. You could tell by the look on his face he just wasn't happy. And so people stopped worshiping, and they stopped paying attention to the speaker. They wanted to know what the pastor thought. And so they had to get him off the stage so people could at least experience God for themselves. It was hilarious. Well, that's exactly what happens to these skeptics, these, these scribes. They, this, you could tell, listen, you didn't need to be a mind reader. This may have been the work of the Spirit, but it was obvious that they were not happy. The funny thing is we have to sort out what they're not happy about because in reality, Jesus and the scribes agreed on a whole lot of things. They actually both believed that God could heal. There was no struggle with that. They actually believed that God could forgive sin. There was no struggle with that. They actually believed that God could give the authority to forgive sin to others. They had no struggle with that. That's why the high priest went to the Holy of Holies once a year so that he could ask for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation of Israel once a year. There was no struggle with that. There was no struggle at all. Here's the issue for them. This is a really big issue, folks. Jesus knows that the person is being forgiven by God. And they don't think anybody can know that. How can you know that the person's being forgiven? What's the visible sign? How can you know that? But it gets much deeper than that. I can hear them thinking, let me put some words in their thoughts, in their minds. What do you mean his sins are forgiven? He has not been to the temple. There was no sacrifice. He has not bought a lamb from the merchants at the temple to make sure they got the right one. He has not obeyed the law or the traditions of the law. There was no ceremony involved. There was no priest involved. He cannot possibly be forgiven. Folks, we're in church today because we want to worship God. But none of us are offering blood sacrifices, and none of us are paying money to do that. And none of us are following all the traditions of the law, not one of us, because it is unnecessary. Because Jesus has brought a new law. It's a law of grace and forgiveness, healing, and wholeness. They could hardly stand it, so they accused him of blasphemy. The funny thing is, folks, the law says that if you're guilty of blasphemy, you should be killed. And it's interesting, if you go to the end of the book of Mark, that's the very accusation that allowed them to have him sent to the cross. And here's the problem Jesus never once claimed that he was going to forgive sins, that he forgave sins, although the Bible says he could. It actually declares that he can forgive sins. What he actually did not say is, I forgive your sins. What he actually said is, your sins are forgiven. That was enough for them. They call blasphemy. And hear me, folks. It is blasphemy, unless it's true that Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sins and to know when sins are forgiven. And that's the point. That's the challenge. That's where it comes head on. So then the question is, what's harder to do? Is it harder to say, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Now, the truth is, I I don't know. I think it might actually be harder to say, take up your bed and walk, because I can tell you your sins are forgiven, and none of us really know, because there's no visible evidence. But if I say, take up your bed and walk, and you're crippled, and you don't take up your bed and walk, then there's physical evidence that I am not what I say I am. And I'm not sure if it's harder or easier, but it is visible or invisible. And Jesus says, I just want you to know the invisible is possible, so here's the visible. And he says to the man, I want you to take up your bed, and I want you to walk. And I love this. The man gets up, and he walks in the crowd parts, and he walks through them completely healed. Ah, More than that, folks, completely forgiven. And in the midst of this story, Jesus tells us something profound about himself. He says that he is the son of man. Now, folks, listen. The Son of God we know, the Son of Man, here's what that means, that he has come to this earth to sacrifice his life, to give his life a ransom for many. And whenever you see the Son of Man, it's always about Calvary. It's always about sacrifice. It's always about knowing we could not forgive ourselves enough. We could not be forgiven enough. But he can forgive us because he was willing to lay down his life so that by his death and resurrection, we could have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and deliverance from the guilt of them. And we could be set free. That's the heart of the message. And when Jesus says he's the Son of Man, that's what that means. Oh, I love this, folks. I love this. Well, we're in Mark It Up. When you came in, I gave you a white card. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it and hold it in your hand for a moment. When I first began to plan this message, I was going to ask you to do three things. The first thing I was going to do was I was going to have you don't do it. Do please don't mark the card. Please do not write on it. Please do not write in this card. It's really important you don't write on it. Everybody got that? Okay, all right. I was going to have you write the list of all the sins that you have committed just this week on one side. And then I realized the card wouldn't be big enough. (laughs) And on the other side, I was going to have you write the list of two or three sins that you struggle with most frequently. And then the third thing I was going to do is I was going to have buckets at the side, and I was going to let you drop the cards in the buckets, on the way out. And as I'm preparing that, I realized how wrong that was. That's really not the way it is at all. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus came to do three things. He came to have my past forgiven so you get a purpose for living and a home in heaven. And folks, this is where the faith moment comes in. This is where you have to believe that Jesus has forgiven you your sins. You have to believe that. We're going to come to that again in a moment. And and I love what one author said. We are not forgiven because we are good. We are forgiven because Christ bore our sins. Did you get that? Is that true? That is. And, And I need to make a statement out of that. Listen to this quote. I love this. Okay? If you don't believe God is forgiving you, you are actually saying that God needs to do more for your forgiveness and that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. Which one of us would want to say that? Hmm. Here's what it means: It actually means if he has forgiven you, I love this, then you can forgive yourself. Wow! One author just absolutely wanted us to understand how powerful salvation was. It just is absolutely amazing, and that author said this: In order to heal, we must first forgive. And sometimes the person we must forgive is ourselves. That also means that when you were forgiven, you were given a clean slate, a fresh start, a brand new beginning. And then we need to ask him to keep us clean, folks. Like, oh, God, you've cleansed my life, but keep me clean, keep sin from me, please, God. And, and, And knowing, knowing that you were completely forgiven ought to help destroy the power of sin in our life. It ought to take it away. Now, let me share a concern with you. I worry about Christianity today a little bit because I, I meet with people for years now. I've just met with people and, and they tell me they're Christians and then they tell me about their life and I hear stories of sin and lack of obedience and lack of surrender and they still talk as if they're perfect with God and I think, oh God, do they not understand that forgiveness, forgiveness does not allow constant sin. And more than that, forgiveness is not a recipe that you just forgive and you and you sin and you get forgive and you sin. No, God is wanting us to come to a place of purity and wholeness. Even though we are forgiven, there's a place where we're drawn to God. And we ought to, forgiveness ought to set us free to cry out to God, Oh, God, keep us from offending you. That should be the heart of forgiveness. I love this. It also means that you can forgive others regardless of the wrong. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It also means if you're here today and you've never come into a relationship with Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven. Franklin Graham said this, all I know is that I'm a sinner and that God has forgiven me of my sins because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, you can do that today. You can do that when we pray a little bit later. Unfortunately, none of this means that we'll be free of sin forever. It does mean if we confess our sins, he will cleanse us at this moment. I love what Igor Stravinsky said, sin, it cannot be undone, only forgiven. Billy Graham said, the Christian life is not a constant high. I have my moments of deep discouragement. I have to go to God in prayer with tears in my eyes and say, oh, God, forgive me or help me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your card in your hand. Would you do that? I want you to hold it in your hand. I want you to look at it. It's perfectly blank, right? Okay, I'd like you to pray this prayer with me out loud. I'm going to say the words, and I'd like you to pray it after me if you're comfortable doing that. It's a prayer of confession. So here we go. I'm going to say it loud. I'd like you to repeat it after me. Jesus, Jesus. I confess that I am a sinner, just like the paralytic in our story. And even though I know you as my Savior, I still fall short of your best. Some sins I do almost by accident, and some I do on purpose. Some sins I struggle with more than others. But I know that you are the Son of God and the Son of Man. I know that you gave your life as a sacrifice to save me from my sins and set me free of them. I know that my sins are an offense to you and they are entirely my fault. I know that you will forgive my sins if I simply ask. So Jesus, I'm asking again today. Please heal my soul. Please forgive all my sins. Amen. And here's what John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Would you take your card for a moment? Take it in your hand? I want you to look at one side. How many sins are listed there? How many sins are there? How many sins are on the other side? If you prayed that prayer with me, then that's what your life is like right now. You've been set free and cleansed by the power of God. That's what it means. Some years ago, I went to a, took some people to a trip to Turkey. We went to a place called uh, Pamukkale. It's absolutely not on a religious journey. We went to visit the seven churches of Revelation, which are all in Turkey. Uh, Pamukkale is uh, the side of a mountain. You actually, it's, uh, and it's, there's some chemical that the whole side of the mountain is white, white, white. And the, the, this, you walk down this path about the width of here, and you can actually, there's water flowing all the time. The water's only three or four inches deep. But if you're not fond of heights, it's petrifying because you walk down the side of a mountain in this warm water. On on this white, white stuff. And so uh, one of the minister's wives that was with us is absolutely petrified of heights. And it's, it's quite an experience, folks. It's really an amazing experience. So we got to the bottom, and as we got to the bottom, she said to me, oh, God, if there ever was a moment I'd like you to take me to home hey, Take me home is right now. Take me to glory right now, God, because I've been so scared. I've never been more clean and more pure in my entire life. I settled every sin I ever had on the side of this mountain because I was so afraid I was going to fall off the mountain and die. I wanted to make sure that God and I had everything right and we were perfectly clean. <laughs> if you confessed your sins today, then you were perfectly clean. Is that good news or what? Is that good news or what? Here's what Mark tells us. Mark tells us the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them. The crowd parted and led him through. It's time for us to do the same. It's time for us to pick up our cards and go home. I trust you'll look at them once or twice this week and know that the forgiveness of God is available. Please stand with me if you would. We're almost finished. When this happened, the crowd declared in amazement as they parted to make the paralytic have room to go through. We never saw anything like this. And in amazement, they declared the glory of God. As you leave today and part through the crowd, I pray that you leave with this thought in your mind. We have never seen anything like this. Jesus has forgiven us. He has set us free. And we'll give glory to God as we go. Well, friends, I hope you feel and you leave here with weight off your shoulders. Because when Christians are forgiven, we don't carry guilt with us, do we? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, friends, don't forget our hymn luncheon at 1150 if you don't already have lunch plans. But as you go, carry that card with you as you head out the door. And with that in mind, as Pastor Bill concluded, just with the amazement, you're forgiven. Man, forgiven. Fresh start. You walk into this day clean and fresh. Enjoy it. God bless you. We'll see you next week.